This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back, listening to Militantly Mixed. Hey, y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, a podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Man. And we are back for episode 61. So this week's guest is Angela. She is from New Hampshire. She comes from a Puerto Rican and Cape Verdean descent. Uh, so she represents black, but she has she was raised around both of her family's cultures, the Cape Verdean and the uh, Puerto Rican side at varying degrees of connection to the cultures. She also, like I said, lives in New Hampshire, where her family was essentially one of the only brown people in the area she grew up. So we talked a lot about what it's like being the only brown family uh, growing up in a very predominantly white space. And then now she is also raising half white children. So we talk about extending the mixedness into your children and, and how you maneuver uh, mixedness as a parent now that, you know, you have mixed kids yourself. So it was a really good conversation. And I'm glad to be sharing it with you as well. Angela and I connected through Instagram because of the uh, racism issue that has been popping up in the yarn community. You've heard a little bit about it when um, Adela came on the show from the Lola Bean Yarn Co. And then last week as well with Molly, who is also starting her own hand dyeing company. She experienced it as well. So this is how we've connected. They found my show through all of that because a lot of us brown and black knitters and crocheters and yarn dyers were seeking each other's company and that's how they discovered the show so boom this is another guest from that i don't even know what to call it event in crafting <laughs> that brought a lot of us uh, black and brown uh crafters together and we don't really get into it that much on this uh, recording but that is the origins of how we connected and everything like that so i'm really glad to be able to share this with you for this week and but before we jump into the episode, as always, the logistics. So just an update from last week. We uh, the T-shirts, the Be Your Mix Ass Self T-shirts are gone now. I don't know what Teespring was doing last week, but it did eventually come down. In fact, that Tuesday it did come down. So the fundraiser shirt is gone for now, but there are still shirts that are available on the Teespring site. Uh, there is always the logo shirt, the Militantly Mixed logo shirt. Uh, there's also mugs and tote bags. And then we, I added the mixed AF period shirts and the unapologetically mixed shirts. There are some kid sizes and there's some hoodies and things like that now in the the mix that weren't there before. I do need to add some kid sizes on the militantly mixed logo shirt though, so I will get those up as well. Again, I'm gonna keep it up. I'm gonna keep having the goal of selling 200 shirts a month until I actually hit it. <laughs> so last month I hit 30 shirts. Uh, or 30 items, uh, not 30 shirts. But um, this month, I'm going to keep the 200 shirt goal in the hopes that we eventually get to that spot. And I have a few more designs that I'm working on that I'm trying to get up as well. So um, if you want to fill your closet with mixed race related t-shirts, I'm your girl, I'm working on it, I will get those up for you. And then uh, we'll release a new fundraiser shirt as well, uh, probably at the end of the month or the beginning of October. So that's one way that you sh can support the show and actually get something to walk around and represent it. The other way to support the show is to go to patreon.com slash militantlymix and you can sponsor the show as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish and there are different reward levels depending on what level you sign up for. At the dollar level, it's just a tip jar. Just letting me know that you like the work and you want to keep it going. Uh, at the $3 level, you get a social media shout out of your choice, Twitter and Instagram. But to be fair, I'm probably going to put it on both. And if you hit at least the $5 level, uh, you'll have access to exclusive and early content that is up on the Patreon page. And then as you get into the higher tiers, there'll be more swag buttons and t-shirts and totes. Oh my, uh, that'll be available for you there as well. I didn't get to do all of the edits last week. Last week, there was a little bit of chaos, um, but I'm going to get that all straightened out this week. And uh, so you'll have those options and really excited that we hit the goal for the $100 a month last month. It, between the sales of the t-shirt and the hitting the $100 a month via Patreon, 
that really did help cover some of these annual renewal costs of uh, some of the various softwares and hosting sites and Skype phone and emails and all that kind of stuff that I, I pay for. Um, for some crazy reason, I all paid for it in August and September last year. And of course, this is a time of year that I'm unemployed and all that come, stuff came due at the same time. So y'all really helped me get through that and I appreciate it. Uh, the goal for September is to hit at least $200 a month on Patreon. And as of right now, we are at 120 a month. So if we can get that last $80 to round out the month of September, uh, that'll keep us on track to uh, gain an additional $100 a month through December when hopefully we will be regularly at a minimum of $500 a month to support uh, the show, all of the stuff that goes into the hosting, the email addresses, the website, all that kind of stuff. Uh, also, hopefully I can get a part-time assistant to handle some of the logistics stuff. And I'm also trying to start getting paid for my time that goes into seeking out guests and researching and editing and all that kind of stuff, because this is a business for me. It's just a, a business that, that at the moment is based on sponsorship and not on uh, clientele, <laughs> but we'll get there. Uh, and then the other way that you can sponsor the show financially is you can go to paypal.me slash militantlymix for a one-time only donation if you just want to drop a, a little bit of change in there. And I know I'm talking about it a lot lately and I don't want to beat a dead horse or, or drive you all crazy with what's going on in my personal life, but um, it really, really does help. The support that you all have been giving me this last, the extra financial support that you all have been giving me this last uh, month has really helped, especially right now because while I'm continuing to look for work, I do not have another job yet. I am coming to, I have spent the last of my money. My bank account is empty officially and I have bills coming up. So at this point, any sponsorship will go towards continuing to keeping the show going and any spillover will be continuing to keep a roof over my head or at least a car uh, so that I can live in one or two of those things because <laughs> that is legitimately where I'm at right now. So I am glad still that I took the the hiatus because I am in a better mental space than I was a month ago. And even though while my personal life is very stressful right now and I am a bit overwhelmed, I'm not so overwhelmed I'm not able to function. So it was, I'm going to keep talking about this mental health hiatus just in a way of telling y'all that if you are experiencing something like that, try to find a way to take a mental health break for yourself as well. Um, you may not have the luxury of taking days off from work or things like that, but try to find ways in which you can shut down and self-care um, to help keep you regulated because as hard as it was to, to admit I needed it and to actually do it, the benefits that I have from having done it are beyond anything. So I'm really glad that I did it and I'm, I hope that you all are taking care of yourself that way as well. And lastly, I think I just want to say continue to follow us on social media. Uh, the social media has grown a little bit recently. I would love to get a lot more engagement, especially on the Facebook community page, because that is a chance for y'all to meet each other uh, versus just me being the, the funnel through which mixedness is shared. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Militantly Mixed, or you can go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Militantly Mixed. Uh, that's where you can talk about the, the book club uh, right now we're still reading the mostly white novel. I know I let y'all down having to deal with my mental health stuff over the summer and not really engaging on that post, but, um, I hope that y'all are still reading the book and that you, you do continue to read it. And I'm going to consider that less a summer reading than just like a, if you're reading the book, engage, even if it's a year from the time we started reading the book, jump in because some of us will have already finished it by then. Some of us might be picking it up. And of course, the author, Allison Hart, is a member of that page and is engaging if you post on it as well. Uh, so go ahead and pick up a copy of Mostly White, the novel by Allison Hart. Uh, support a fellow mixed race content creator and, and honestly, just enjoy reading a, a fictional narrative about mixed race people. That is an experience that I have never had before. And it was awesome being able to read the book. And even though the ethnic groups aren't necessarily the same as mine. I could feel things that I've experienced or feelings that I've had through these characters. And I think eventually I'll probably try to get a recording of some people reacting to it as well. Uh, but it was amazing. And I really hope you enjoy the book and keep supporting Allison. For any of you out there that are doing things, if you've got a business or a book or a content creation or a side hustle and you're mixed and you need support from the mixed race community, 
please let me know about it and I will showcase you on the show. I think that's important. You got hair care products, you got uh, books that you're writing, you got videos on YouTube, whatever it is. Uh, as you see, I've been talking about the Yarn Dyers because I, that's a community that I'm attached to. But I want to showcase what you're doing and so that other people, mixed race people, can support your work. I am really about supporting within the community as much as possible, whether that is purchasing locally when you can or buying black on buyblack.com or whatever it is. But the same thing applies to us, us mixed folks. We, it, it's great when we're doing things. It's even better when we're being supported by our own. So um, if you do have something that you want to showcase, please send me an email, charmaine at militantlymixed.com. S is in Sam, H-A-R, M is in Mary, A, N is in Nancy E, at militantlymixed.com. Of course, all of the links of everything I've talked about today and, um, and of my email and everything is in the show notes. So you can, please, you can go there or you can follow me on social media and slide into my DMs. I will be the person who will answer and uh, we can start showcasing what it is that y'all are doing out there and hopefully uh, develop more of a continued community via the Facebook page so that we can engage on a one-to-one -one level as much as possible. Uh, we got some good content coming up. I'm still looking for more guests. I would like to flush out October earlier uh, rather than later. So if you've been considering sending me an email to come on the show, please do so this week because I'm going to be scheduling for the October and November interviews over the next couple weeks. All right, I think that's it. We're good. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our guest, Angela. So my guest this week is Angela. Angela, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and let's get into it. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Angela. Um, I am half, we'll jump into it, I guess, half Puerto Rican. My mom is Puerto Rican uh, and my dad is black. He actually passed away in 2006, but his family is from Cape Verde. Um, and I grew up in the suburbs of New Hampshire in the early 80s. <laughs> Um, so that in and of itself is, is quite an experience as a mixed person. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> as a brown so, person, as a, even an off-white person would have, person, <laughs> would have yes. trouble in that environment. <laughs> Absolutely. And I didn't, I, I didn't grow up thinking that I even had an issue or, or that we were different until probably like middle school or high school that I started realizing that we were different. Oh, really? Yeah. So, and it was just me and my sister and my parents, um, didn't have any extended family around. So it was kind of our little unit trying to navigate everything, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I still live in New Hampshire and I'm actually married to a white man and have two beautiful little babies, little, but they're six and seven, six and eight now. God. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's been an experience and having to navigate that now as a mother and a wife of someone who's not of my race has been an experience as well. So yeah, I I have had a chance to really dive into this podcast and, and listen to other people's perspectives. And it was the first time, and I was telling you earlier, like how it just hit me so hard emotionally that there are people out there that have gone through the same experience as me and and can understand like the language and have put words to it where right. it hasn't been around for as long as we've been around. So it's so cool to have that um, identity. Yeah. Out there. The important thing for me when I started was just really like no joke. I mean, it sounds like a joke, but no joke. It was really just so that I can sit with somebody else that was mixed and be like, you know how white people da, 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 yes! and, and just kind of commiserate or whatever about some of the stuff that happens. But really, once you once you break down to it, it was it was therapeutic to speak about being mixed and, and dealing with some of the other issues that we deal with as mixed people with somebody else who is also experiencing those issues. Mm -hmm. You realize that absence of tribe, you know, that we kind of grow up with. Like, yeah, we do grow up with some people that are the same things that we are, but they're not all of the things that we are. You exactly. Know? And, and that that's really been for me, it's been life changing to to keep this up and to have those kinds of 
interactions on a weekly basis with folks, but also just on the listener side, what I, the responses I get are similar to the things that you and I talked about before, which was just, there weren't people like this where I was at. I didn't have anybody to talk to. And, you know, this is the positive side, I think, of the internet and the world being smaller is that if we don't live in a place where people look like us or are like us, we can find our, our people right out there. And it's, it's nowadays, nowadays, I sound like I'm so old, I'm only 39, but still, (laughs) (laughs) it's, it's becoming more normal for mixed race people to be just around this area where we're living. Oh, really? Um, Okay. Yeah. So people are migrating from Massachusetts, all over the United States coming up. And there's so many kids in my uh, children's classes that are mixed, which is so cool to see. Like um, we were at a birthday party a couple weeks back and um, he has a little best, my son has a best friend who's half black, half white. And we were just talking about the struggle that they have as parents and the struggles that they've been through, but also the bullying that their son gets. And granted, Mm. like my son is a little bit lighter, but still you can tell he's mixed. Mm -hmm. But just knowing that like I have these people around me now that I can identify with. And it's just amazing because we didn't see each other on TV. We couldn't see anybody like us, you know, on advertisements you know, in the movies, none of that. And even though like I present black and I probably pass as Hispanic in my family unit, there's nobody that I could say, oh, they're half Puerto Rican, half black. I know what that's like. I've seen that. That's my face. Like it just hasn't happened. So it's getting better. It's just, yeah, we're not quite there. So I'm appreciative that you have started this and have this platform. So yeah, right. hit me hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I hit me I'm, real hard. <laughs> I'm glad that that it resonates. I mean that that's the that's the important thing too is is like same like growing up there weren't people that looked like me and and the weird thing is is I grew up I had a very mixed race childhood. Both of my parents are biracial. Almost all of my cousins have a mix that's different than mine. You know, I do actually have some black Japanese and white cousins on my dad's side, just like my brother and I. But I have Mexican Italian black sibling half siblings I have black and white cousins I have Japanese and white cousins you know like I I grew up with a lot of mixed people and a lot of us kind of looked alike or didn't you know it, mm-hmm. it, so it's not like I didn't have exposure to mixedness and, and a comfort being around people who didn't look like me because the people who didn't look like me I happen to also be related to uh, right but even with that going out into the world and trying to be mixed didn't make sense you know I was I was that little mixed girl in most of my schools because I did grow up predominantly around black people. The name that people used for me was, oh, Charmaine, that little mixed girl, you know, and I used to love that because at least they acknowledged that I was part black. But as I got older, the way white people responded to me, that's when I started to be uncomfortable about what at the time I used to describe as me being different, but now I describe as them being different from me. Right. I didn't. I didn't know how complicated, I didn't understand how complicated my relationship to my face, my skin color, and my ethnic groups and cultures were until I didn't have access to people that were like me anymore. Um, And when you're growing up as either, you know, just you and a sibling or you're the only people in town, you know, it's got to be even worse to feel like, well, maybe not worse, but even more isolating anyway, in terms of like, there just aren't people like me. Obviously, I'm the different one. And, mm-hmm. and I hate that feeling of being the one that has to be the different one. So trying yeah. starting the show has a lot to do with making us not feel different and, yeah. and being able to celebrate the things about us that are different, if, even as Absolutely. I'm trying to not do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing is like embracing, embracing everyone's differences has brought us into the world. And the, the fact that our parents were able to set aside their own upbringings and the misgivings that happened then and find love in another person that didn't look like them. Mm-hmm. And that's something that needs to continue, I think. And it, it's just all about love and embracing everyone for who they are and not what they look like. So it's so crazy too, yeah. because we also come from cultures or some of us that are mixed this way come from cultures where the people we come from are mixed, but have stopped acknowledging themselves as mixed, which I think a lot of Puerto Ricans deal with. I assume 
uh, oh, yeah. Cape Verdeans do because of the the historical wave of Portuguese and Africans that work their way through the island and everything. Like we come from mixed people, we forget yeah. we're mixed, and then we mix again. <laughs> exactly, and that's how we get all the beautiful shades of brown that we're that we are. But even like in my own family, on my mom's side, my grandmother is dark like me, but all of my mom's siblings are light-skinned and her father was light-skinned. So as a result, all of the cousins are just a mixture. I had a cousin who was very dark like me, but could have passed like my, he was my brother. Um, But then I had cousins who were light like my mom. So it was Mm -hmm. just like all over the place. And there really is a lot of um, racism within and prejudice within that culture too. Right. Just like if you don't have the good hair or you don't have light skin, there's just like little jabs that you hear growing Mm -hmm. up that kind of like I didn't really think they were bad or really had an issue with them until I was older. But yeah, it's like that on both sides. If you had light skin and and the nice hair or light eyes, then you were considered more beautiful. And yeah, I had my first perm when I was six. Mm. Um, that's so, so early. yeah, it was just like, yeah, it's so early. And granted, my mom didn't know what to do with my damn hair, <laughs> but still, like, six is six is young. Six is super young. I can't imagine having my six-year-old go through that. Yeah, so my mom's a hairstylist, and when I was younger, before she went to hair school, she permed my hair when I was three, and um, mm-hmm. so my hair textured straight Asian-style hair, and um, although humidity will reveal... <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll reveal the secret. <laughs> You know, uh, but but your hair doesn't even mature until you're 13, 14 years old. It's part of your puberty process. So if you do this kind of stuff when you're younger, you actually do potentially damage and change the potential of the hair until you get to that age. So, yeah, it's rough. That's actually one of the things that drives me nuts, too. Like you can almost always pinpoint someone who, you know, has the obviously someone has the white parent or the parent that doesn't have access to to black style hairs. You know, if they're if they're a black mixed kid and you're just like, oh, please go to a black hair salon and so they can teach mm-hmm. you how to take care of your kids hair naturally yeah but it was also the 80s when like I had the jerry curl mm-hmm. I had like <laughs> I had some questionable I'm from that time too mm-hmm. yeah so it was I mean part of it was the time and not having access to it but also part of it was that we lived in an area where there were not places for black people to get their hair done you had to go all the way down to boston to get that it's still like that now um and you couldn't just jump on the internet to get mixed chicks hair products or anything like that yeah exactly and now i i order my stuff online it's very rare that i get stuff in my area that i can use on my hair um Mm. which is out of like, it's just, it's mind boggling in, in this day and age that I can't find stuff to cook with. I can't find stuff to do my hair with. Like now, right. 2019, it's still happening. So yeah, it's, it's a, sometimes it's a struggle. I don't let it get to me anymore. I'm at the point where it's just kind of, it is what it is, but yeah. But it does just suck. Like it sucks. We <laughs> just, this is like everyday life. And this is what a lot of monoracial people, but I'm going to, I'm going to also say specifically white monoracial people because cultural foods, white cultural foods is a little bit more accessible wherever they are in the United States versus any kind of POC cultural foods, you know, like you may even in New Hampshire have an Asian food section, but it'll be like top ramen and, yeah, you know, that's exactly what it hoisin is. sauce and soy sauce and things like that. Like not things that actually, you know, not all of the flavors that we bring into our food. And I imagine with um, Latin American food and, and honestly, besides coffee milk, I don't know what uh, Cape Verdean cuisine is like. I have no idea what kind of foods you would want access to and not have where you live, but that we have to go on the internet or or take a caravan. I mean, the worst thing is when I lived in Austin or Boston, my grandmother in Sacramento, California, would have to go to the Japanese grocery store and like every couple months send me a care package of all of my Japanese foods. My mom does that now. She lives in Florida. Uh, so she sends me the good stuff. Like she'll send me spices or she'll send me uh, beans because I can't find gandules anywhere here. Oh. That's like for our rice and like specific meats and things like that. So she'll send me that stuff every mm-hmm. couple months. I'll get a nice package. But yeah, it's frustrating. And I want to be able to have my kids experience that stuff that I experienced when I was a kid. And, right. and it's hard to do. I mean, I try to try to get them 
to understand that part of my culture, but I mean, we do it in other ways when I can. So it's, it's definitely a struggle though. (laughs) But food is such a huge part of how people access culture, you know, like Mm -hmm. almost any time. And this even happens to white people. I was watching the, the chef show on, um, on Netflix the other day where Jon Favreau was talking about cultural food and, and, and it was just a comment. It was just a throwaway comment, right? It was like in the middle of eating. It was like, you know, this is how we connect to our family is through our, through our food from where we're from. And that is, that's the thing, right? Like that's the first step of entering into your culture is the kinds of foods that your people eat. And here is how we prepare, you know, our people's foods and things like that. And it sucks when you don't have that access. And it's so weird to try to explain why it's important to people who don't have to worry about it. Right, right. And I like, it's not a a hardship for me to have to go a couple towns over to find what I need. But it's still annoying that I can't just go to the grocery store that we go to every week. Right. And buy a can of beans, like just a a can of beans that we don't have. It's little stuff like that. It's, yeah. It gets frustrating after a while, but we make it work. It It is what it is. And my mother spoils them when we get together and visit <laughs> her. So, yeah, it's it's nice to, it's nice it's to nice have to her have around still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I do want to ask, since you are married to a Caucasian person, do you, what's the dynamic in terms of explaining to your spouse what you're dealing with and and by you know eventually your children will also deal with because they have a different version of the being different from the other kids like are they do they understand that there is something that they don't understand is happening and will defer to you for those types of yeah it's been um I guess the conversation started when I first was pregnant with my son um and we had to figure out names and we had to figure out uh how we were going to address certain things as they came about. Cause they're eventually going to, mm-hmm. we're going to have these happen. And like clockwork in kindergarten, it happened. So he's, he's experiencing the N word for the first time at oh six goodness. years old. He's experienced not towards him, but he's hearing it and mm. he knows it's wrong mm. towards a friend. And how do you deal with that? And uh, having to go to the school and speak with the principal and all that stuff. Um, it's just a conversation that he and I have, my husband and I have on the regular, like it's, it's just what we talk about and it's part of who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, it's never been an issue with him. He understands like, this is me. This is how I grew up. It comes with a lot of baggage, (laughs) but he's not without his own issues too. But with regard to the race stuff, he knows when it's time to take a step back and let me handle it because I have the experience, Mm -hmm. but he still wants to be a part of it and be a part of the conversation. So it's never like, it's never been awkward. It's never been difficult with him. He's really good at listening to me and letting me kind of vent and do my thing and speak up when I feel like something is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, which is amazing. I can't ask for anybody, anybody better. Um, than him but we had an incident this year where both my kids were involved on the school bus where a little girl who was probably five um was just continually bullying my my kids I don't know why but it eventually turned up that she spat on my son Mm. um and my daughter just came up and she was not having it she did not like it she just let her know that it was not okay and your daughter is younger she's younger. younger child yeah yeah. And she, I don't know where she gets her sass from, but, <laughs> um, she was very quick to, t- to let us know that this happened on the bus and it wasn't right. And so, uh, the next day the mother of the child came up to me <laughs> and, and approached me about it and ended up saying that, uh, it was my son's fault for provoking or picking on her daughter. Mm. Um, and I saw my son's demeanor change from like, he realized this girl is lying. That's Mm. not the truth. That's not what happened. So I had to let her say her piece, let her go and tell her that I was going to deal with it. Thank you for approaching me and we'll deal with it separately. And then I had to pull him aside and say, listen, people are going to lie just so they don't get in trouble. People are going to do things that you think are wrong and you think that they're your friends, but they're obviously not. And you're going to have to deal with that. And it's never okay to lie. It's never okay to treat people that way, but you have to know it's going to happen. 
So we got through it and we know now that she's not a friend and we're not going to, we are still going to be kind and and nice and be cordial, but we don't have to go out of our way anymore. Um, And so they're, they're learning that, (laughs) which is sad at six and eight years old. Yeah, that's pretty young. I mean, I, my first you know, memory of racism and and things like that I've talked about on the show before is it didn't happen until I was in third grade. And that's my first exposure to the N-word. And that's my first exposure to being told that the reason they could not be my friend was because my dad was brown. You know, like, that's Ugh. it. Nothing else. Just that's the reason. And, um, and, uh, I guess I have always thought that that was pretty young, but if you're dealing, if you're hearing it for the first time in kindergarten and things like that and being Mm -hmm. aware of it, that's, that's, that's real young. It's huge. And my, my son is not a fighter by any means. Mm. He's he's very emotional, very, uh, in tune to his feelings. So, which is why he has such an intense younger sister. (laughs) Yes. And she's very protective of him. Yeah. (laughs) That's so cute. (laughs) But it's, it's like, okay, you guys have to stand up for yourselves. You have to be able to say, no, this is not right. I don't like what you're doing and be vocal about it because no one is going to speak up for your, for you other than you in the moment. So we're working on it. They still don't like to make people upset. They don't want to get people in trouble, but we have to understand there are things that happen that are not okay and need to be addressed when they happen. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I didn't get to hear, I didn't have to hear those types of things until I was much, much older. My sister was a lot younger, but I never experienced that as a child. Mm. Um, That's so I'm still going through it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we were, we were more like the token family. Yeah. (laughs) The token ethnic family. So for the majority of my childhood, Oh, they're so cute. Oh, they're so exotic looking yeah Um, our favorite word but yeah it was more like they were the we were the cute family or we were the token brown people in our town um and my sister got more of it I don't know if it she, she was just louder or just more aggressive in her nature or what but she experienced that first (laughs) but Mm. it was it was uh kind of blissful ignorance for a long time Mm. for a long time and my parents kept us in a sheltered little bubble. I don't, I'm seeing now that there's a reason for that, but uh, we didn't have a lot of exposure to the people in our area until much, much later. Oh, okay. What about your access to both sides of your family's cultures and, and languages and things like that? I mean, beyond food, which we already kind of talked about a little bit, what you said your family was kind of, you were the only ones that were, that were out there. So when did, when and how did you get access to your cultures or were you trying, or was your family trying to be as fully American as they could be? Um, I think it was more so my dad trying to stay out of the environment where he was grown, where he grew up. Cause it was very hood and like mm-hmm. ghetto and he wanted to get out of there and didn't want to raise a family there. So he kept us as far away from that as possible. But in the same token, we didn't get a lot of ex- exposure to our family mm. in New Bedford. Um, but with so I had more exposure to my mom's side just because they migrated from Puerto Rico, came up here and lived about 45 minutes to an hour from us. So we would get together on the weekends and have birthday parties, Christmas, all kinds of things. So I had a lot of that exposure of the Puerto Rican side. Uh, and very little uh, of my dad's side for a very long time mm. until I was a teenager, actually. But so, yeah. So you had more access even probably to Spanish then too than you did to Portuguese or? Oh yeah, I didn't learn any Portuguese whatsoever. Um, my mother was learning English as she as we were learning to speak. So she was teaching us, um, like that's what I spoke before I spoke English. <laughs> right. Um, but as as the years progressed, I... My mom went to work and she spoke English all the time at home. My dad didn't speak very much Spanish. So that was the language that we spoke at home. Uh, But I kept a lot of it, just being able to understand it and hear it and not so much speak it, but I knew what was going on all the time, Mm. um, which kind of made things easier. But then again, it kept, it kind of alienated my sister and myself from, that side of the family because we didn't speak it. Um, and when we did, we were made fun of right. for sounding too white. 
so yeah oh so like your spanish accent sounds white to them uh, apparently it did so that's in- that see i'm me- fascinated by this because i always wonder what does your accent sound like to people because when i speak japanese or what limited japanese i speak i've been told i sound like an old lady and the reason why is because the old lady that i know that is japanese is my grandmother who i used to live with so right my cadence <laughs> and my pronunciation is old lady japanese uh that's funny that you you sound your spanish sounds white white yeah i sound like a white person trying to speak spanish <laughs> that's awesome actually. so i i would try every so often but then they would start laughing at me and so i just would stop and i would still listen i knew what they were saying but i would always answer in english yeah see um, that's how and, races language yeah. like that's how that gets erased yeah and so i in high school i took spanish because obviously easy A, but mm-hmm. I went to college and was going to be a Spanish major and, and do that because I really wanted to embrace it. But oh, okay. at the end of the day, I had that little twinge in the back of my mind that was saying like, your accent's not quite right. Mm-hmm. You're at, you're going to get caught. Like, it's just, I just didn't want to take that chance. So I changed majors and got out of it. Oh, and no. I really don't speak it that much. I mean, there are little phrases that I'll say to the kids and, and teach them little things and we'll watch shows in Spanish and things like that. But yeah. So they're they're getting it, but maybe not to the degree that you had it when you were little? Oh, not, a, not even, yeah, not even close. If you not were to close. move to a Spanish-speaking area, like if you were to go down to Florida or back to Puerto Rico with family and things like that, do you think you would be able to get to fluent quickly? Oh, I'm sure I could. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's not as much of a struggle for me to navigate, like if I need to, Mm. um, I'm just, we don't have the exposure where we are now and there's no need for, for, there's no reason for me to have to speak Spanish where you're at. Yeah. Yeah, I even wonder how, like, seriously, just because I did live up there, and well, I lived in Massachusetts, but it, I always wondered how they even got foreign languages up there because it was just always mm-hmm. so white, with the exception of the pockets where, you know, you could find people of color. Everywhere else was just so white. So it was like, how did they even find out that there were pe- brown people in the world where they in these small towns that are <laughs> that are there? It's a lot. It's a lot of family telling each other that like this is this is where we're moving and then families will move together or friends mm-hmm. find out about other friends so it's it's a very communal type situation and like where my aunt migrated to in Massachusetts there's a big Puerto Rican Dominican population so mm-hmm. that was that was that <laughs> i mean they had churches uh, that spoke spanish on sundays and a lot of the schooling was in spanish so they did pretty well. They did pretty well. And actually, where I lived in in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, about three towns over, there was a Dominican hairstylist. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. every so often I would go, I actually, for prom, I went down <laughs> and got my hair blown out by a Dominican stylist and she did my hair and it was fabulous. And yeah, but I was there for like six hours right? getting my hair done. Oh my god. For those in the awful. audience who are not familiar with this, here in the states and particularly the East Coast, it is very well known that if you are of Afro-Latin descent or even just have black hair, the Dominican hairstylist place is where you could live your best naturalista life because yes. they will help. <laughs> yes. They know everything to keep the, the frizz away. Mm-hmm. They know everything. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very, very lucky to have that. But I was still relaxing up until <laughs> Oh really? January of this year is when I stopped. But is that like um, are you going to white salons and it's white people that are doing your relaxers? No, I did it myself. Oh, you're doing it yourself. Okay. Um Oh yeah. Because yeah. they don't learn that. <laughs> Unless they're and that's, they don't learn it. They yeah. would actually ask if I went to get my hair cut, you can smell like when your hair gets cut, you can smell the relaxer coming out of your hair. Mm-hmm. And they'd ask me what that smell was. And I'm like, Oh, I relaxed my hair. Like they didn't know they have no clue. That that was a thing. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I'm just baffled. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a real thing because my mom my mom who is Japanese and white she went to hair school but she went to hair school to learn black hair so her entire career over the last almost 40 years has been 35 years has been a japanese white lady doing black hair 
yeah. and and so all the things that I know about hair I know because of my mom and and it's just like you've seen you've watched girls get their hair broken off or just totally destroyed because they've gone to white hairstylists who have just never had access it's 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 not a one size fits all industry at all you have to know how to work with certain hair textures and um, absolutely yeah it's a, absolutely you, you and, scared me when you were like when i get relaxers i'm like but who in new hampshire could do oh no i relaxer? did it myself i did it myself and i and my my aunt was a hairstylist she's still licensed so she would do my relaxer when i was a kid um and then after mm-hmm. a while i just did it myself because it was easier she wasn't around all that often um, cause she lives in Massachusetts. So I would go and get my relaxer and do it myself every three months right. on the dot. Right. When I, as soon as I saw that growth come in, I was doing it myself. So, <laughs> and how, how, what's your hair, your kid's hair texture? Like, is it, they have for all intents and purposes, white hair. Have they been tested out? Like in the summers when it gets really humid, does it, does it reveal? No, no? not at all. Hmm. Not at all. And my daughter has blue eyes. My son has green eyes. Uh, and they have like light brown hair, but mm. their skin gets dark, 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 dark in the summertime. Right. That sounds uh, a lot like me and my brother. We, yeah, we would get real dark in the summer. I mean, I'm actually the way I am now, my face is the palest thing on me, which is weird. Cause it's the most exposed thing, but like my stomach and my legs and the parts that aren't ever exposed are darker than the skin that is exposed. It makes right. no sense. <laughs> and it's, there's a joke like that I have with my sister-in-law. Um, that I'll go outside for 10 minutes and I'll have tan lines and she has to work at it for like hours. all summer long just to get her <laughs> base. Know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, a, it's, it's become a joke at this point because yeah, I have, that's one of my, uh, strong points. It's <laughs> my yeah. tanning ability, but I, that's part of like the little subtle jabs that you get as a mixed person mm-hmm. that, you know, it's not meant to be hurtful, but nobody's ever said anything about it so it's just kind of it is what it is yeah it's like a microaggression masked in a compliment oh you tan so well or a joke Mm -hmm. or something yeah it's like uh yeah Yeah. I mean in in my family (laughs) on the Japanese side because they didn't know we were mixed with black when we got dark over the summer they just thought we were Mexican because we would only tell them that our dad was American because we, Mm -hmm. we didn't want to get disowned for prejudice reasons and things and um and uh but we were so brown they couldn't figure out how american kids could end up that brown yeah and so we had to be mexican <laughs> like that that's what they thought um, of course because there's that's the only <laughs> like that's what that's they knew the there's like hispanic we... that a lot of people understand or know of so they automatically assume and don't know that there's so many so other many. and that like and then nobody gets along <laughs> And they don't get along. Yeah, we were talking about that the other day, too. It's like the Puerto Ricans and Dominicans are always fighting, but they come from literally the same area. The same area. They have the same culture. The same same culture and everything. Right. It's just that maybe it's a slightly different spice in this particular rice or this and that, but primarily a lot of the food is similar, a lot of the culture is similar. The Tahinos were all over that area, so they're all mixed with at least that that in terms of the indigenous side, they're mixed with the same type of indigenous folks, um, mm-hmm. not to mention slavery and colonization and all that kind of stuff. But it's so crazy, the differences. And the language is the same. There's so many reasons exactly to get along. So many reasons. It's exactly. Yeah. So I don't, I get some of the reasons why, um, but for the most part, like stick together people because that's all you have. I Come know. On. I know it happens on the Asian side too. The the Asians, none of the Asians get along. I told you a little bit like going to Japanese restaurants here in the states are almost always run by Koreans if they're not in a predominantly Japanese area, and uh, my grandma would just get so upset because the food doesn't taste quite right, the sauces aren't mm-hmm. right, and and even worse if the person is Korean but looks Japanese and she mistakes them for Japanese and finds out they're <laughs> Korean. Yeah, forget about it. So. It, it it's it's just like it's it's just yeah i had a crush on a That's korean a mixed korean boy and yeah no not a thing not don't do that yeah my <laughs> my dad's side uh his aunt was very much um with me in particular i don't know about my sister she just wanted to make sure that i didn't have crushes on the white boys and didn't present too white or didn't Uh-oh. speak too white or <laughs> Yeah, she didn't, I mean, she passed away before 
I married my husband, but <laughs> sorry to laugh at that. <laughs> I know it's like she was very much like wanting me to maintain my blackness as much as possible. My sister embraced it, and she was her favorite. But got it for so, me. Yeah. It was a, it was a constant. Yeah, yeah. Constant. Um, on my Japanese her. side, same type of thing. Like, it wasn't as bad if I was attracted to white people as it would be if I was attracted to anybody else. Like, anybody yes. else, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't help I identify more on my black side, even though I'm yellow presenting. And I just, like, that was that was what happened. And then I did end up partnering with someone who's half white and half Middle Eastern. They don't know, like, they only know that he's white because that's what they see. They see right. the pale skin. They don't see all the other things. And yeah, it's just a thing. And it's, it's, it always affected me. Like I didn't even want to be around that <laughs> as a kid. I just didn't have a choice. Yeah. Whenever she came up, she was there and in my face. And as I got older, I just made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to put myself in that type of situation. And I hear a lot of people that you've interviewed too have had a similar situation where there's a, there's a family member or group of family members that they can't identify with or can't associate with because they're just that toxic. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do think a lot of your first accesses to toxicity is within your own family because you know, no one's perfect. Everybody's got their own biases and they're trying to keep those same biases within the family as much and as it's possible. Sad. It's sad because you're missing out on such awesome people and just because you can't get behind the fact that they're brown or they're darker than you and the crazy thing too is when they decide you're supposed to align with one side or the other you know or the other you need to be more puerto rican what's wrong why are you trying to be you know more cape verde like in your case that could have Mm -hmm. possibly been a thing in my case it's like in my case honestly my japanese grandmother wanted me to be american like that was yeah. her thing was she came to America to be an American. Why are you interested in Japanese stuff? Um, yeah. So it was kind of a weird little thing there, but but it's always this thing of you have to you you, you can't have to be mixed. One. You have to pick one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's and with I, everything. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. And and it wasn't ever an issue with my parents. It was never you need to pick a side. It was you are this and this is who you are and that's it. For other people, though, you are a black woman. Right. So you need to make sure that they know that. But that's for other people. Yeah. The The issue came up more so with my Hispanic side where they kind of like pushed me aside sometimes because I didn't speak Spanish. Right, <laughs> and the yeah. same with the black side. I was too white. I talked too white. I sounded like I was stuck up. Um all kinds of all man kinds of shit like that. as a culture on the black side we got to do something about that thing the the idea of sounding white or sounding you know black or whatever because this is your version of blackness the way you speak is, and it, you mm-hmm. are black so the way you speak is speaking black it doesn't you know you just happen to grow up around a lot of white folks and so yeah maybe you do sound like them but you don't sound like them because they're white folks you sound like that because those are the people that's the people who are around there. That's what they sound like. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not, it's not my, my, it wasn't my choice to come into the world mixed. It wasn't my choice Mm -hmm. to come in living in a white environment. This is what I had access to. This is what opportunities were given to me. I was so, so privileged to be able to go to college when my father didn't get to go. Um, But that was not, on that side of things, on the, on his family side of things for a couple of my family members, that was me being stuck up or me being, uh, not being proud enough of my black side to, um, present more black. So it was kind of like, Mm. Oh, she's disowning us or she doesn't care about us, which is so far from the truth. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult (laughs) to have like, both sides of your family not accepting you all the way, but they kind of do. And then the people that you grow up around have no idea what it's like to have either side. So I can't, I couldn't identify with anyone as a kid. Like I didn't have anybody other than my sister who knew about me, like what it was like to be mixed. 
Um, I just had a lot of white kids, yeah. <laughs> maybe a couple of Vietnamese kids, but that was it. So did you and your sibling talk though, like as kids, would you talk about your mixedness when you're younger or is that something you do more now as adults? She, she and I have had a difficult relationship, I think partly because she embraced more of the black side and I kind of leaned more towards the Hispanic side. Mm. Um, and she got into it. We got into it a couple times because I was not embracing my blackness. Right. Um, and I think part of me was just trying to navigate life <laughs> and not make a big scene. Like I just wanted to blend in so bad. I just wanted to got be it. like not seen. Yeah. And she wanted to be seen. So that was a huge, that's, uh, that's me and my brother. <laughs> yeah. So like I was black. And my brother was white, and he didn't like that I talked about being black. He didn't want people to know. He didn't like me around his friends because how could I contain all of this blackness, you know, and and Japanese yeah. too. Like, he didn't want anybody to know anything of what he was. And um, and for me to just be living all the way out loud was, was a thing. So we don't – we can't talk about it. We haven't talked in a while, but um, when we were attempting to talk about this stuff – it always ended in a way that it was just like, this is not a subject we can, we'll ever agree on or get along on. So better to just not talk about it. And that's kind of how we've landed. Like we'll talk about everything else except for that. Um, because that brings out a lot of hurt feelings and, mm -hmm. and resentment and things. So we've learned to kind of dis disagree or agree to disagree right. on a lot of that. But on the same token, we can both kind of be like yo white people you know like yeah. we just like oh, you will never hear what i just heard and like we'll just go and, and yeah cackle together and yeah so it's we've gotten to a place where we we're comfortable in our mixedness that yeah. we can just kind of exist coexist so it, it is weird and and the more i i can see now too especially doing the show i can see where i was probably too hard in trying to make my brother embrace the full ass mixedness of us um you know i i he is a person that does want to fly under the radar and things like that too and i was i was basically trying to turn him into something that he wasn't but on the flip side of that it's just like i think he would look down on me for embracing the black side and that that spurred me on like that angered me that he had mm -hmm. those feelings like how can you have these feelings if this is what you're from uh, but I'm starting, especially listening to other people talk about this, I'm starting to get, like, you don't know what the thing is that attaches you to one or the other. It's not that you are necessarily choosing, but there is something, and for a lot of things, there's something that connects to us more on one side than the other, maybe. Um, in yeah. my case, I'm very hierarchical. I really, I love blackness before anything, and then I love Japanese-ness, and then... I like specifically British whiteness because that's the exposure to whiteness <laughs> that I have. Like that's my yes. whiteness. Um, American whiteness, I'm still trying to translate. I'm still trying to figure out what those folks are like. Even though I have family, I, you know, I, I have relatives. I don't know them. So I don't know. I didn't grow up around American white people. I, I, was, an, I was an adult when they started to pop up in my life. And so they're still kind of a, it's, it's like National it's Geographic for me trying to yeah. figure out like, why do white people do this? Like that's, it's still a thing I don't understand really. But <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, they're my own little national, like going to work in, just working in a space where there are white people. It's just like, I hear like Attenborough's voice in the background being like American white people, you know, just <laughs> describing to me their weird things that they do <laughs> and it's it's true like I hate I don't want to pinpoint people and like make them feel uncomfortable but on the same token if they're that comfortable making assumptions about us right why not <laughs> I mean why not it's it's yeah it's something that I've just I wanted to fit in so bad that I just kind of let a lot of things slide when I know mm. I should have spoken up on a lot at still I, mm. I still struggle with that because I have family that is now I need to be mindful of that too right um so yeah I keep my I keep my mouth shut a lot more than I should mm. <laughs> just because trying to keep the peace and that's always how I've been since I was a kid just making sure that we are getting along that nobody's fighting that we're all chill and mm. 
So are you yeah, the younger still... siblings? No, I'm the older. I'm the older of us. <laughs> oh, wow. I would have pegged you for the younger sibling because of the peacemaker thing. But you know, that's that's like, not everybody is the textbook thing. But for some reason, like, that's how like my youngest aunt was or, or like my brother and things like that. It's like, no, everybody, let's just chill out and be cool yeah talk, you know. let's just have we can have fun and not insult each other like <laughs> it's 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 okay if we hang out for an hour and not poke jabs at each other so yeah it's it's something that I I know I need to work on and and learn that it's not going to kill me if I speak up about an injustice that I'm seeing or right. something wrong that I'm hearing that it's an education opportunity for someone else um and I think that's part of the reason why it's it sparked something in me listening to your podcast and wanting to talk to you too is it's not anything I've ever talked to any of my friends or family about outside of my husband mm. um about the things that I've thought about and experienced and had <laughs> to deal with just because I I don't like reliving it I don't like having to um be go through those bad feelings like it just it chokes me up you can hear it in my voice right now but like I just I don't it's not something that I've ever wanted to talk about until I heard that other people have had a similar experience and mm -hmm. I want people to know that you can you'll get through it and that you know even though it's it might seem hard or it might seem like it's terrible because I've gone through depressions I've gone through like suicidal thoughts and things like that because you don't know where you fit in you don't mm -hmm. have a group you don't have a tribe so but eventually you'll find that and I think it's it's so cool that we have the internet now and the access that is just it's amazing to me <laughs> yeah the internet aspect of it is has been great because when would I have ever in regular ass life been able to talk to you know a, a person in Ethiopia who's working for a circus or a student in uh, Quebec who is actually from France and or you know like all these people that I've gotten a chance to speak to all over the world or even just here in the states there are like you you live in New Hampshire and even though there was a time I lived in Massachusetts I probably never managed to drive through your town you know where and what I would have found these opportunities to, to speak to mixed race people if not for the internet right um but since we are coming to the end of the show let's talk about what you love about being mixed what i love about being mixed honestly we are beautiful i just i just love all the different shades of brown all the hair differences all the eye differences like i just like being different and it's taken me so long to get here that i feel like yeah, I'm really proud to be different than everyone else. Um, and how boring would it be if everyone looked the same? <laughs> um, so I just, I, I love that part of me that, yeah, I have Hispanic culture. I have black culture. I have little bits of white culture, very little, but it's there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing to, to be that different person now. And, and I try to embrace it as much as I can. <laughs> right. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I do appreciate it. I appreciate your engagement too. I mean, we, we share a social circle. It's how we accidentally became connected is that we are both uh, crafters, right? And yeah. in the same Knitters, social baby. social group and everything <laughs> like that. So, um, so it's nice. It's also nice to stumble on other mixed people in places where you weren't expecting to find yes. another mixed person. Yes. And, and with that conversation that has been going on in the knitting community since the beginning of the year, it's right. been nice to, to find other people of color who are enjoying the same things that you enjoy. So right. that aspect is amazing too. Yeah. So. And before we go, is there any last words, anything you want to say? Uh, just thank you for having me and having the conversation. I really, I really appreciate it. And I can't say enough how much I am so happy that this exists and I can't wait to see what happens next on the platform. So I'm very excited. Thank you. See you grow. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast, produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantlymixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.